Let's pray. Lord, thank you for thank you for the worship, Lord, and thank you for your presence. And Lord, as we look into your word, I pray and I ask, Holy Spirit, that you will, as it says in your word in 1 John 2, 27, that you teach us. So teach us as we look into your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week, we looked at something that was interesting. We're going through and trying to simplify and make it simple. The was called the five solas of the Reformation period. And you know, you're saying, why are we doing that? Because there are five essential foundations that every believer needs to understand and hold on to. And we saw last week, we saw this, we saw sola scriptura, which means scripture alone. And our definition of that was this. Sola scriptura means that scripture alone is the believer's highest authority for faith and practice. The Bible is complete, infallible, inerrant, authoritative, effective, and then ultimately, altogether, is sufficient for everything we need. The Bible is all we need to equip us for life, a life of faith, and a life of service. In fact, in 2 Timothy, we see this. It says, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Now, that's great. There's a lot of men who study the Bible, a lot of women who study the Bible. There's a lot of what we call biblical scholars that do not know Jesus, meaning they're not born again. You can study the Word of God all you want and be well-versed in it, but that doesn't make you born again. So what does? This. Both God and His Word must be met with something, and that something is faith. Let me show you something. This is what we're going to look at today. Solo fide. If I said it correctly, I'm not a Latin scholar. So um, enjoy my pronunciations. Sola fide means faith alone. We are saved through faith alone in Jesus Christ. Now why, why was this written? Well, if you go back and you look, when the church started, there was a wonderful purity. It wasn't perfect, but there was a wonderful purity. And as time went on, things began to change. Within the first century, Theological debates started happening. The second century, they got worse. By the time of the third century, by the 300s, the church had all kinds of things being pumped into it. What I mean by that, heresies, um, additions. We're not, we don't have time to, to really look into it. By, by mid-300s, the church had been moved from the homes and in the gathering places, meaning many times they would meet in fields, by rivers, by all kinds of things. But it was moved from that by Constantine to buildings. And the thing that happened that was terrible was this. Is that Christianity was made a national so-called, and I'm saying it this way, a national religion. And you had to abide by it which is one bad thing, because it 
gave this idea. It's like when they say if you were born in Texas in the Bible Belt, the buckle of the Bible Belt, then you believe you're a Christian. You're born in Georgia and you were raised in the Christianity, you believe you're a Christian. Well, it happened to the church. Constantine started hiring speakers that were orators and paying them, making them convert to Christianity from their heathen nations or their heathen religions, and he put them in as speakers in the church. They hired choir people. And I'm going on and on. And so this changed. And by this time, we're not going to get into dates and everything, but by this time, Roman Catholicism started to form. And the church became a hierarchy, but it also became a ruling factor in the nation. And what the church said went. And if you don't think that's going on today, you better start looking and open your eyes. And they became the church leaders, the big leaders became political figures. And so the church started laying down this, these rules and regulations that continued on. Now, during that time, there was a group, we'll call them, but they weren't called this yet, but they, they were Protestants. They, were, they didn't go with that, and they were on the outskirts. But as a whole, the church was running stuff. So as the centuries went by, it got more powerful and more powerful and more powerful and more powerful. So by the time of what we're looking at, we've been looking at Martin Luther a little bit, not him, but what happened in the Reformation. By this time, all kinds of things had crept in, and the deception took over. Let me show you something. Why out of the Reformation did we get this faith alone? For this reason. Let me show you the definition. An indulgence. Anybody know what an indulgence is? Okay. Is a means of remission. This is straight from Catholic.com. And I'm not tearing down Catholicism. But this is wrong. Let me show you something. Is a means of remission of a temporal punishment for sins. Now listen to this. Read it with me. No, I mean don't read it out loud. But read it with me. Is a means of remission of, of, the temp, of sins. The temporal punishment of sins. Which have already been forgiven. But are due to the Christian in this life and or in purgatory. And indulgence in, re, removes the time spent in purgatory. Now, let's hold off on purgatory for a moment. Did you catch that? There's sins that are already forgiven, but we have to pay for them. Now, just no comments. You want to. I can see it. I can see your eyes going, but... You're starting to bow up, you know? Just chill for a moment, okay? Don't, don't, don't interrupt me, please, okay? Let me keep this going. So what are they doing? To get an, bless you. You get an indulgence to help you get out of purgatory eventually. Let me show you what purgatory is. Purgatory is the place, now don't say it's my home, Okay? I heard a couple of people, oh, you, I can tell you something about purgatory, bud. Okay? <laughs> Don't call names out either. 
Purgatory is the place in the afterlife where some of the sins of people are purged through suffering. How would you like that? Okay. After a period of time corresponding to the suffering necessary for the sins committed, the person is then set free and enters heaven. Now, one, that's scripturally wrong. No matter how you look at it, it's wrong. Just, you don't have to look it up, but in 2 Corinthians 5, 8, it says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. There's no purgatory. But this is a suffering. This is, was imposed on the people as a form of manipulation, control. So what happened? Well, during Martin Luther's time, Pope Leo X, now I'm giving, I have to give you all this so you understand where we're going from. Pope Leo X wanted to rebuild St. Peter's Basilica. So what did he do? He, did, he came across something that would solve it. On March 15, 1517, he declared that anyone who contributed to the, cardinal, uh, to the cathedral would be granted an indulgence. Hey, buy your way into heaven. This is what he said. And I hope you can read it with me. I absolve you. Now, as if you paid some money. Now, I know that that didn't come, well, it came out better there. I absolve you from all thy sins, transgressions, and excesses, how enormous soever they may be, and remit to you all punishment which you deserve in purgatory on their account, and I restore you to the innocence and purity which you possessed at baptism. So that when you die, the gates of punishment shall be shut. And if you shall not die at present, this grace shall remain in full force when you are at the point of death. But we, we laugh and we snicker at it, <clears throat> but it was believed. And let me tell you something. We believe things very similar today. Anytime we don't trust in the very grace of God. We believe this stuff. Meaning what? You struggling with whether you're saved or not? Is faith enough? Let's go on. So this is being believed. So what happens? Turn with me real quick in your Bible. It's not going to be up there. Turn with me real quick to Romans chapter 1. So, this skinny little monk, maybe he's skinny, I just wanted to say that. This skinny little monk named Martin Luther, no matter what you think about it, there were some things he believed that were wrong, okay? He was very anti-Semitic. Some things were misunderstood, some things were not, and we're not discussing that today. God used an imperfect man to change the face of Christianity, just like he does with us. And if you don't think that that can go on the Bible, look at Samson. Look at Abraham. Look at Paul. We can go on and on. Look at David, the murderer, adulterer. But God used him, right? Okay, so let me go on. The skinny little monk is studying the Word of God over and over and over again. He reads a passage or two verses that all of a sudden God uses to jump off the page. Look at it. Verse, chapter 1, verse 16. 
For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. <coughs> Excuse me. Now here's the one that changed his life. Okay? For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. What was going on and how it got twisted was this. Now listen to me. The Latin word is justificare for righteousness in Romans chapter 1, verse 17. It means this. It's made up of the word justice, which is justice or righteousness, and the verb, the infinitive, facare, which means what? It means to make. The Catholic clergy understood the doctrine of justification as what happens when God, through the sacraments of the church and elsewhere, make unrighteous people righteous. I'm going to read that again. It's what happens when God, through the sacraments of the church and elsewhere, make unrighteous people righteous. They took the Latin word instead of the Greek word, and they used it, and I'm sorry to say, to control Martin Luther looked up the Greek word. Look at this. Luther was looking at the Greek word that was in Romans 1.17 for righteous, righteousness. Okay, not the Latin word. The Greek word is diakiosune, which didn't make, uh, mean to make righteous, but rather to regard as righteous, to count as righteous, to declare as righteous. And this was a moment of awakening for Luther. Paul was not talking about the righteousness which God himself is righteous, but a righteousness that God gives freely by his grace to a people who don't have righteousness of their own. Are you catching this? Is God taking, because of the cross, And declaring us by the finished work of Jesus Christ as righteous. Not because we are, but because he says, I'm going to say that they're righteous. Because of the work of Christ on the cross. But what was happening is they were telling people, you got to do this. You know, well, we'll get to it in a moment. Got to do this, you got to do that. You got to say the rosary, you got to say this. You got to pay this, you got to do that. To hopefully become righteous enough where you have to pay for your sins later on in purgatory and get out of purgatory quicker. Let that sink in. At the Council of Trent, you're going, why are you giving us history? Because in just a moment, it will come together, I promise. The Council of Trent which is done between 1545 and 1563. It was called the Counter-Reformation by most. Because what happened was, is that they, the, the cardinals and the pope and everybody and all the big religious leaders got together and they started to refute what was being said in what we call the Reformation today. And what they said was this. I'm going to put it simple. Faith plus works equals salvation. Your faith, you got to believe, but you got to do these certain things if you want to be saved. 
to believe in salvation without works, okay? If you believe that, straight salvation by faith alone, not by works, you would be this. You would be excommunicated with curses, which is called an anathema. Don't let me bore you with this, because let me tell you something. You're going to see something in a moment. I promise you, by the grace of God, that's going to make you go, oh my gosh. And some of you may go, I've been trusting in other things besides just the faith alone in Christ. Today's church has a massive misunderstanding in it. You know what it is? It's this. We're preaching a moralistic deism. You're going, what is that? It's this. If I'm good enough, if I am, do the right things, if I support uh, social justice, if I support um, doing, uh, feeding the poor, if I support um, you know, giving out, uh, going and, and working, and don't take this wrong in anyone, going and working real hard at a food bank, if I clean the church well, which we do have a great person, she will get into heaven just for that. Okay. If I do these things, if I, if I, if I abstain, which you should, okay, abstain from sexual uh, you know, promiscuity before marriage, then I'll get into heaven. If you don't think that's going on, you're wrong. It is. Okay? Be moral. This makes me good with God if I'm moral. There's a moralism that's being preached more than anything else in many churches. Here's another. There's called an externalism, which is what? Do these good things and you will be right with God. If I worship hard enough, and let me tell you, I've seen it. I've been in the charismatic movement for a long time, and before that was in the Baptist movement, and they're no different. If I go to Sunday school and I get my Sunday school pins, and I'm there every Sunday, that makes me good. God likes that, and God's going to be good with me because of that. Or if I can worship hard, and I go to every worship conference that there is, and I go to every worship gathering, or I run up to the, you know, I drive up to the, the revival that's happened, God will be good with me about that. No! God is only good with, from, with you because of the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. That's it. You can't do anything to earn God's love and to earn God's righteousness. We cannot do enough to become righteous uh, by God's holy standard. Meaning what? There's nothing I can do to be, to be up to par with God's holy standard. In fact, turn with me. Romans chapter 3. Let's get to that. Hang on. We're halfway through. Look at Romans chapter 3. Look at verse 10. As it is written, read it with me. There is none righteous, not even one. Let's keep going. There's no one who understands. There's none who seeks for God. All have turned aside together that they have become useless. How would you like that word used of you? 
There is none who does good. There is no, there's not even one. You want to keep reading? Or we can, we'll stop there. That ought to depress you enough. But here's the thing. Later on it says there's no one that seeks God. You're, you sought God because God sought you. Now think about that. Because, I'm going to say this and forgive me, seeker-sensitive churches, it's not even scriptural because the Bible says no one seeks God. So what are we doing? We're opening up a place to make it comfortable because we think people are going to come because of that. That, just because someone shows up on a Sunday morning doesn't mean they're seeking God. We can argue that later on. Matthew chapter 5, verse 20 says this, For I say to you, that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And the Pharisees weren't getting in. And if anybody walked around righteous by their own standards, thinking it was God's standards, it was them. And Jesus says, look at them. Your righteousness has got to be greater than that if you even want to think about getting into the, the kingdom of heaven. Was he telling them to be more do more and do more and do more to be better than the No. He was saying because when he came to the cross and he gave his life, shed his blood, was buried, resurrected, and was ascended, his righteousness is imputed to believers when we confess our sin, when we repent of our sin and come to Christ. He gives it to us. Because we can't earn it. We can't get it. This was not being taught before. That's why Martin Luther said, there's something wrong here. You still with me? Okay. You hanging in there? Okay, good. God declares believers righteous. Listen to this. God declares believers righteous, not guilty. That'll make you jump up, slap your neighbor, and get Pentecostal. The doctrine of justification by faith. Let me read it to you. It's a declaration <clears throat> that the person has been restored to a state of righteousness through belief and trust in the work of Christ rather than on the basis of one's own accomplishment. Man. This is not God changing. Now listen to this carefully. This is not God changing a person internally and making them morally perfect. Why? Because then, if God changed us internally and made us morally perfect, we would have some works to depend on, would we not? Now, should you try to live morally? Yes. Is there anything wrong with that? No. And that's a result of salvation. You want to do. Okay? God declares the sinner to be righteous in his sight, not on the basis of their good works, but in response to their faith in Christ's finished work on the cross. Let me show you something. Turn with me, Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4. Let's start in verse 1. Yeah, don't look on the screen, look in your Bible. I had a couple of people walk up and go, look, I brought my Bible. Because remember I challenged y'all, put your phones down and get the paper bound. Okay? 
Let's look at it. What then shall we say, verse 1, that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham, what does it say? Believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Ooh. Let's go on. Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. What does that mean? Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. You can work all you want. God's do that, but it doesn't get you into heaven. You can't earn it. You can't buy it. You can't beat yourself up physically to make it happen, to make yourself more submitted to God or more mortified against sin. You can't do it. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that this is hyper grace, which means what? I got saved. God's grace is upon me. I'm getting in heaven so I can live any way I want because I'm always being forgiven. No, if you believe that, you're not saved. This sounds hard, doesn't it? But it's not. This is the joy of it. God's righteousness, okay, God's righteous justification overrides man's condemnation. Let me stop for a minute. Do you know one of the things that most believers, I, and I say this, and I'm saying this even with me, most believers don't understand is that God loves them and forgives them. Because many times when we, we do stumble, and don't think that it was just a mistake. There's no such thing as a mistake. You willfully sinned. Okay? But when we do, that's where the grace of God is standing because he gave us 1 John 1, 9. We confess our sins. That's to believers. We confess our sin. He's faithful and just to forgive our sin and cleanse us from unrighteousness. But what do we not understand? That God forgives. Because what do we do? When we do sin, should we be remorseful? Yes. Should we be sorrowful? Yes. Should we repent? Yes. Repentance is for believers as much as it is for unbelievers to come to Christ. We should be repentant. I talked to a Bible scholar this week. He really is a Bible scholar. This week on the phone. And he brought it up and I went, yeah, I just said that last week. And he goes, really? I said, yeah. He goes, it's true. Repentance is for believers as much as for unbelievers. But when believers are repenting and repenting and never let go and accept the forgiveness of God, then we've gone backwards and we're trying to earn God's salvation. We think we have to pay for it. We put ourselves in purgatory. You with me? Okay. Look what it says. Romans 8, 33 and the first part of 34. You want to turn to it? You can. Okay. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Now stop there. Later on it goes, Jesus, uh, Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, and it tells you that why doesn't God condemn? Because 
of the cross. But if God is the one who justifies, who are you to condemn yourself? If you're condemning yourself, then you've gone back to the 1200s and you're believing that stuff. Don't think it's not here today. It is. So what I'll do, I'll come down to the altar 19 times for 19 weeks and ask God to forgive me for that one sin that I did, you know, 20 weeks ago. And I keep coming down and coming down and, it, and we're holding on to it thinking that God won't forgive because God can't love me anymore because I did this and I disobeyed him and I hurt him and I sinned. God loves you. You know why we believe that? Because most don't give the grace of God to one another. We'll just stop there. Solo fide. We are saved through faith alone in Jesus Christ. Turn with me, Ephesians chapter 2. You know we got to go to Ephesians in every sermon. For the guests, it's one of my favorite books. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. Look at it real quick. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Stop there. How are we saved? Let's say it again. How are we saved? Faith. faith. Through faith. Now watch what it says. And that not of yourselves... That means you can't do it. You can't earn it. You can't buy it. And stop there for a moment. I was a young Bible student. I was, what, 19 years old. And, um, and I knew nothing. I said this last week. I knew nothing. You know, I really didn't. I was a, just this hippie kid that got saved, and I didn't, I didn't understand much. But I understand that Jesus loved me, and he died for my sins, and it was by his grace I got saved. So while I was in Bible college, I was working as a maintenance guy, at, um, at a, the apartment complex that I lived in with my family. And uh, the guy was, the, the owner was really nice, and, he, uh, and I cleaned the apartments when they were vacated, and I cleaned the, the air conditioner filters and all that kind of stuff. And, and, um, and one day I was in the owner's apartment. He lived there. And uh, I was cleaning his air conditioner. And I, I was doing some stuff, and I looked on the wall, not... It was like the air conditioning unit's here. There was a framed picture on the wall. And I looked at it, I started reading it. It was from the Catholic Church. It was his indulgence. I didn't know what it was. And I'm reading this thing, and I'm not, again, I am not slamming anybody. Because let me tell you something, Protestants have their own indulgences, trust me. And I'm reading and I'm looking at it, and he saw me reading and I said, I said to him, I said, what is this? Now, he knew it was in Bible college. He goes, you don't know what that is? I went, no. He goes, look at the signature. And it was the Pope of that time, you know, 30, 40, 40-something years ago. And, um, and I looked at it. I go, well, what does that mean? And he goes, that's my certificate to get into heaven. And he was serious. And I looked at him. And I went, I, doofus here. You know, I, I went, nah. And he goes, no, really. And he was, he was an older guy. And he goes, no, really. That's my certificate that I get into heaven. I said, forgive me. I said it kindly and innocently. I said, 
are they going to put that in your coffin? And he goes, no, silly, no, no. It's just that, that the Pope declared me that I can get into heaven. And I looked at him and I said, but that's not how you get into heaven. He goes, yeah, it is. I said, no, it's not. And I gave him the gospel. And he goes, yeah, I did all that, but that's my certificate to get into heaven. And I went, what do you mean you did all that? And he goes, I was baptized as a baby. I mean, you know, all my sin went away then. It was, all the original sin was taken care of. You know, and and I'm, I won't spend that much time in purgatory because of this. And I went, you don't need that. And he goes, yes, I do. He goes, finish your work. And I've never forgotten that. We don't. You know what one of the charismania things, and I say this, being charismatic, you know what one it is? Do we really believe that God loves us? Now, everybody will say yes. But how come do we constantly have to get a prophetic word? I mean constantly, I mean, we're always looking for a prophetic word and in it to show God's favor over us. Did you catch what I said there? We're always looking for, there's nothing wrong. We believe in the prophetic. We, I want to see the prophetic more. But we're constantly looking for that to see that we have God's approval. How about this? God loves you. I know, but I've done so much. No, God loves you. I know, but I, I, I heard him. I, okay, okay, yeah, he loves me. Do you really believe it? We have our moments, yes. But why do we have more moments than facts? Am I making sense? Solo Fide, faith alone, is one of the distinguishing key points that separate the true biblical gospel from false gospels. It is the very gospel itself. It is therefore a matter of eternal life or death. Because if you don't believe it's by faith alone, there's a very good chance you never were born again. So it's a matter of life and eternal death. Eternal suffering in hell. We don't think of it that way. We think it just kind of flippantly. This is eternity rests on this. A person's eternity, where they're going to spend, rests on that by faith alone. Martin Luther lived from 1483 to 1546. He strove with all of his might to attain salvation. He prayed earnestly. He studied tirelessly. He held countless vigils, prayer vigils recited numerous masses, and harshly mistreated his body, all with the goal of bringing his unruly flesh into submission. If you don't believe that still happens today, you're wrong. Even among the Protestants. He beat himself physically. He would cry out. He thought that Satan was constantly on his case. Probably he was. And he did all this stuff trying to earn salvation. In fact, 
he wrote this in a book called Lectures on Genesis. He said this, the more I sweat, the less quiet and peace I felt. Later in life, while studying Romans chapter 1, verses 16 to 17, Luther finally attained the peace he strove to find. It came not as a result of discovering new and difficult works to perform, but simply by believing in Christ who justifies the ungodly with his own righteousness. Luther wrote in his book, a Preface to the Complete Edition of Luther's Latin Writings, he wrote this, here I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. There, a totally other face of the entire scripture showed itself to me. Thus, that place in Romans was for me truly the gate to paradise. He understood that salvation is by faith alone, not of works. Quit striving. God loves you. God forgives you. Even in our struggles, God's love is there. We are saved by faith alone. Not by giving to the church. Not by giving more money. Not by serving more, which you should. Not by going to every worship conference, not by going to every Bible study, not by going, to, it's by faith alone. But when we do get saved, when we do become born again, we're gonna want to do the things that God wants us to do. And when we do stumble and when we do fall, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast. Turn with me real quick to Titus. Titus. You're going, where's Titus? Well, if you come to the Bible study on Mondays, every other Monday, you will know. Okay, it's after 2 Timothy. Look at Titus chapter 1. No, excuse me, chapter 3. Look at verse 4. But when the kindness of God, our Savior, and his love for mankind. Look, what's that next word? Appeared. He saved us. Not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness. It means goodness. We want to do good things. But according to his mercy. By the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. Which he poured out upon us. Meaning believers. Richly through who? Jesus Christ what? Our Savior. You're not your Savior. Jesus is. So all that put together, what does faith alone release us from? Let me show you. Soli fide, faith alone, releases believers from the false gospel of works and releases them from a life spent in emotional purgatory Striving to pay for their sins. Are you saved by grace through faith alone? Is that how you came to Christ? Or are you still trying to win God's favor? 
Let's pray.